0: thank you Norma for being here with us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh you're very welcome. So we do this podcast on publishing practices with Indigenous people and it's a fairly new podcast through the Tanya who is it through the Book Publishers Association? It's
2: through
0: the Writers Guild of Alberta. The Writers Guild of of Alberta so that's who it's for and we're just looking at how we can better inform Publishing practices with Indigenous people and also encourage Indigenous people to publish as well and get more people out there sharing their stories.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so we just have a few questions for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let us know who you are and where you're from, what you're <laughs> doing.
1: <laughs> I'm Norma Denning, I'm an Anouk writer and scholar and researcher. I'm just finishing up my PhD with Indigenous Peoples Education through the University of Alberta. And uh, I was a military kid, so we moved every couple of years. So I really am not from anywhere in particular, and not a particular place. My mother was a Padla Inuit from the Kuwaitan area of northern Manitoba. And my father was a farm boy from southern Manitoba, so he joined the military. Uh, rejoined after serving in World War II, he rejoined just before I was born, and I'm number five of six children that my my folks had. So I did spend uh, 27 years in Edmonton. That was the longest I ever lived anywhere.
0: <laughs> oh wow! How's uh how's your PhD going right now.
1: Just finishing up. We just should get in May. Perfect. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Perfect.
0: Tanya is also doing her PhD. She just started in Native Studies, so that's yes, exciting. It's been
2: quite the adventure. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I <laughs> So Norma, what got you interested
1: in writing? What got me into writing? Uh, I've always written. I never published. That was the difference. Um, I always, always wrote from the time I was very small, and I always wrote poetry first. So my first collection of poetry will publish this September, and it's through Bookland Publishing out of uh, Markham, Ontario. So it was funny for me to publish in prose first when I've always written poetry first. The collection that published probably, that's about five to six years of writing that I just always wrote and never did anything with. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try, you know, see what happens with it. And away I sent it off to uh, the University of Alberta Press. So it was the first time I ever published, and, and I think overall it was a, you know, it was a decent sort of experience, and, and I did come away learning quite a bit about publishing and about copyright and about an assortment of things that I did not expect to, to learn about. But I'm glad I, you know that I know them, that I had the experience that I did have. Tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, Annie Muktuk and Other Stories is uh, a short story collection. And the bulk of the writing is based on my own ancestors uh, who were in the North. And uh, Annie has, uh, she won the Donata Gleed Award and the Howard O'Hagan Award and received a bronze standing with forward reviews. So she became um, a fairly well awarded book, especially for a first out as an Aboriginal writer. And it's uh, the stories are basically on my own mother is a, a great uh, many components within each story, and uh, my grandfather is husky in the story husky, <laughs> and um, and so that's how you know the book came together was. You know, really talking about my own ancestors is really the the story that I tell.
0: And what made you decide to go with the University of Alberta Press over other publishing companies?
1: I went with UAP because two of the stories, uh, the, the short version of Annie Muktuk and the story... Um, I had been awarded, well, I was uh, still a student at the U of A in, in my BA. I had been awarded the, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember them, the James Patrick Follinsby Award, as well as, uh, oh, I can't remember my other award, but two of the stories were awarded through the creative writing program at the U of A. And so I thought, well, you know, a lot, I just felt like, you know, a lot of these stories were written while I was a student, and therefore I I sent it to UAP. I don't know if that was uh, very good logic, but that's how I figured it out. (laughs) Sure,
3: Yeah. yeah. Stick with what you know, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering, why is it important for you that community stories and stories from your family are shared, or also, I guess, not shared.
1: Mm, I would say it's more important that they are shared, and we have to think about future generations as writers and what we leave behind as our own little bit of a legacy. And to me, you know, I have uh, I have a total of five grandchildren, and it's important to me that, you know, that they know that history in some way. So I've always felt that as Aboriginal writers, it is easier to get our truth out to the media or into the public eye through um, creative fiction. Uh, It's a more accepted venue or or way of getting our truth out there. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to get to where it was, okay, I'll try this. I mean, these stories stayed with me for a very long time before I ever put them down. And then once I did have them tucked away on a file in my laptop, it took, um, you know, it took a few more years before I could let them go. But it was, you know, it's getting to that place where this is important. And I think other people should read about it. And there's so few of us who write creative fiction, there's in terms of um, Inuit writers, there's a, a great many ethno, auto-ethnographic works that are out there. But to, to sit down or legends, you know, it seems to fall into one of two categories. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who just sat down and wrote creatively all the way through, I think, is really quite rare in Canada. So that's... Uh, that was how it all came together, and I think we we should all be telling our stories and putting them down on paper, even though for in we we remain very much an oral culture and and not so much with uh, writing. And um, you know our kids up north they're still dropping out of high school at a rate of about seventy four percent a year. Yeah, so the rate is huge. So it becomes important, you know, to put a voice forward and to make Canada think about inner people in some way.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. How does your family feel about publish- you publishing your stories? I like- mean, um, it,
1: it's, uh, it's funny it, how it turned out. And I think overall, uh, I will say that they were generous overall. I will say, you know, that my youngest son, when I had my launch at Audrey's book, like my sons had received their copies in advance and and they were each, I sent them each copy. And uh, my youngest son had said to me after, you know, mom, when I'm at home and I'm reading your book, you're a writer. You're not my mom, you're a writer. But when I'm at Audrey's and you're up there reading all that sex stuff, (laughs) I don't know, mom. Like, that's my mom up there in front of everybody. (laughs) So he had like this discomfort with it. And so, you know, get over yourself. But anyway, it was, um, you know, it's different how, you know, how they each reacted. And uh, one of the things I found quite amazing is. The story, Iliski is the they each cried in that story. You know they each told me how, oh, I just bawled. you know, I got to the end of that story and I just cried. And I didn't expect that kind of reaction from my own my own sons. I didn't expect that you know, that they would have that kind of outcome with the story. so but I mean, for them, I'm just their mother. You know more than anything, and I can say, "Oh, I wrote a really good paragraph today," and they're like, oh, oh, "That's nice." <laughs> and you know, it's 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 not uh, you know it's not a big thing for them, and I think that you know they just see me as their well, that's my mom. <laughs> you know, leave it at that.
0: So did you? So I have seen. Annie Muckup before and read a little bit
1: of it. Did you do the cover art for Annie or who did it? UAP did it. That's actually a self-portrait of Annie Puguktuk, and she died a couple years ago. They dragged her body out of the Ottawa river and, you know, she was a a beautiful artist and she comes from a long, long line of artists.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, the controversy with her was when her body was pulled out of the Ottawa River. The attending RCMP gentleman uh, said, "You know, if you people would just get on board, you know, we wouldn't be having to drag these bodies out." So that was her self-portrait, and that was uh, chosen by the cover. Uh, the cover jacket was designed through UAP.
3: Yeah. It's amazing to me that you mentioned Annie uh, Peruku um, because when I used to live in Toronto and I went to like a feminist Wikipedia edit-a-thon at the Art Gallery of Ontario mm-hmm. and that was one of the artists that I selected to like make a Wikipedia entry about.
1: Yeah,
3: so it's just, and like, and then a few months later, then she, she died and I was like, whoa, I know this person. Or I felt like some sort of connection there. So I'm not sure if the Wikipedia article is still up or
1: yeah. the
3: status of it right now. But yeah, that's amazing.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm
3: very, very sad, you know.
1: Very sad ending, a very sad uh, ending because she did leave behind a child. And, yeah. um, you know, it so, you know, for me, I, what I worried about was, I was concerned that people would think that Annie, Annie Muckluck, who is a character in the book, that mm-hmm. they would confuse her with Annie and that was But that, ha, that has not happened. But that was one of my concerns that I said to the press, I'm I'm afraid there's going to be that confusion. Mm-hmm. It, it hasn't occurred. And I'm told uh, through the press, when they go out to various book fairs, that the cover um, intrigues people and they will at least pick up the book and, you know, kind of run their thumbs through it. I don't know how much, you know, I don't know if they're buying it, but there are, you know, it does attract people's attention. So, so that's, that's what you want a book cover to do. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is quite bright, the yellow on the jacket and with the really stunning picture on it as well, the drawing. So, yeah. I think it's a beautiful book cover. So,
3: mm-hmm. do, you, do you have any plans of making this into an audiobook or any audiobooks in uh, the future? Yes,
1: I have. I have uh, made application to the Canada Council of the Arts for an audiobook grant. I okay. have a studio in Vancouver that will work with me. So um, I just sent out that I think the applications were due for the 22nd of March. And so I should know, you know, end of next month. And according to the audio person that I'll work with in Vancouver, it should be about 20 hours of recording. Somebody else I know was trying to set up, you know, a contract through Audible. Okay. It'll okay. happen, you know, um, Audible will go in and, they'll, you know, they'll do all the, the back sound. But what we've decided is just to have my voice read the book, and have not bring in, you know, the wind howling or the sound of snowflakes or whatever it is, that, you know, that uh, wolf in the background. Um, so it, so yeah, so there are plans for it to go forward as an audiobook.
0: Perfect. And so, did you choose to be the voice on the audiobook, or did they give you the option to have somebody else doing the reading?
1: You know, what's funny, CNIB out of Toronto does hold, um, have a studio where people can go in and record. The thing with them is that the author cannot be the reader. So, in my case, they would have to find another Aboriginal person. And currently, there are no... Or yeah, I don't know if there is ever, well, I don't know if he I don't think Eden Robinson read her book, and it's it's audible. Tanya Tegak did read on her book, but and I think hers was released uh, separately and through her publisher. You know, I'm a good reader, and I have a good voice, and I know it. And I know how to make the story sound. When we're creating the the words when we're writing them, we hear them. And so to me, my voice is the best voice to put forward and i look forward to it
3: yeah that's interesting to me that they wouldn't let they don't let the author read for the cnib that's interesting do you know why that might be
1: no i don't know how that works and you know and to think that in the case of an aboriginal writer they would have to find another separate aboriginal reader yeah. That's you know, currently, there aren't any Aboriginal readers available. So, you know, it, I don't know how that works. That was the information I was given. But, they, I, you know, they do have a studio. CNIB does have a studio in, in Toronto where they do record. But I think, too, of, um, you know, I think of people, how you can broaden your audience. But I know a lot of people who can read and who are, you know, have sight and can read but prefer to listen to a book mm-hmm. over, yes. over um, reading it. And I think, you know, that's kind of too bad because in time we may just lose print altogether. You know, like it's a possibility, and I, I think that's too bad.
0: So has your book been translated into any other languages?
1: Yes, um, it has. It'll release. There's a publisher out of Montreal and they are translating right now. So it will release in French in September of 2020. And there are three German publishers who are interested in translating any over. So.
2: And have
0: you ever thought about releasing it in an Indigenous language?
1: I would so- have to find somebody, you know, who has that kind of fluency. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I would like that. I would like, why not have it not only in Inuktitut, why not have it in Cree? You know, why not? So, yeah, I would be having people who can do that kind of translation work. And I think those people are very limited. You know, there aren't very, very many people who can translate as closely as possible to the original work.
0: So when you submitted your book to U of A Press, was there lots of editing that went with it or not too much?
1: I think you know they will say substantive edits. I think that um my take is they they had a very good manuscript in front of them and they knew it. And um you know when we talk about the substantive and it is, it's different and I know it's different. And because you know when you work you know writers are also readers. And so we pay attention to what's on the market and what is being marketed right now, how it's being marketed, who is, you know, the writer of the moment, because that, you know, that's very fleeting. It, it literally is your 15 minutes or seconds. So for me, when I am told substantive edits, we have to look at it as, in my thinking, my worldview against their worldview and and not in terms of verses or in terms of um, mm-hmm. anger or anything like that it's just you're working with people who think differently and communicate differently than you do you know it was it's getting past that and it's getting getting to where you can both be on board and it's taking the time to um, be patient enough to explain to each other and be able to hear each other. So, you know, that's, that's really what the process is. It's about really hearing what each other is saying. And one thing I learned very well and that I think of more often now when I write is how is the reader taking this in? Because when I write, I just assume everybody gets it because I understand it, so therefore everyone understands it. (laughs) But it's that no, not everybody gets it, and that you have to take the time to put in that little bit more detail and to think about how do white people read this book? You know, there's a lot of Inuktitut in that book, and I thought about not putting, not providing a glossary at all readers can work, they can go look words up. And so, you know, that was one of the things that we debated was whether or not to provide a glossary, whether or not to italicize the aneptic words, you know, do we have to make it obviously different from everything else on that page? Does one word have to stand out? So I was happy they didn't you know that the that the words are not italicized within the work and i don't think they should be i don't think we should have to have that kind of glaring difference um within written work
3: yeah it's interesting that you mention worldviews, because we've we've talked about that before about how there's a divide between the teacher and like student in that aspect also like reader and writer so yeah
1: and it's really, you know, trying to think of how do other people take it in. And, and it's, it doesn't mean you give in. And it doesn't mean that you totally reshape a story or remove the essence of a story. It means that you try to think of ways for other people to have a better understanding. I mean, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to have non enemy people read your work. And to, to think about it. And if, and if that means they read Koblona Red, which is like 1,500 words, I, if they take the time to read that and they think about it for 35 seconds, then I did my job. They yeah. thought about it for 35 seconds. They may never think about it again, but that's why. Right. They thought about it for 35 seconds. For 35 seconds, they had to think about an Inuit girl in a residential school being raped repeatedly, they had to think about it, and so to me, then the work is done as a writer.
2: Honestly, I I get fascinated that you're making those almost they're subtle but not really subtle editing choices. Yeah. To me, that just screams resistance and resiliency. Just. Whether to italicize or not to. I was wondering
1: if there was any other things that you were thinking about or that came up in the writing process in terms of like more grammar, grammar or stylistic things. Uh, oh yeah, you know, like uh, we can go grammar crazy. If... <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I'll give you this example. There's, there's only there. It's a total of four lines in the book, where the Two of the sisters in the story, my sisters and I, um, their duty is to go out and chop wood and to supply the wood for the residential school. So they're out doing that. They're on one of their, and of course, you know, I mean, it's child labor. They're not really in the classroom at all, and so that's their assignment. And they're out there, and they're, um, they're, there's a white character in there named Joshua. And he would they would fell the trees, and then he would load the truck. And they're on a break, and he starts talking like they're out there. They have a little bit of a fire going. They've made some tea. And Joshua says, hey, do you girls want to come out to the dance tonight at the Legion? And they don't know what he means. Like what's that, you know? And he, and he's well, what's the matter with you? How do you not know that? Every, you know, everybody your age knows what going out to a dance is. And and so he starts to um, he sings them the song "My Sisters and I." Now you have to remember, like the story is set in around you know the late or mid to late 1940s. And in there, he finishes singing, and he's trying to teach one of the sisters how to dance, you know, like the, the way white people dance. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, <laughs> but so uh, the younger sister says, let's show him our singing, you know, because he had sang to them. So let's show him our singing mm-hmm and so they, they come together and they begin to throat sing now the next you know the next three lines are the sisters and they're standing facing one another and they start you know mmm 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 st- so that's what i write mm-hmm. but i write it o o o m m mm-hmm. a a Mm -hmm. It becomes the biggest discussion in the whole book. (laughs) Where where are we putting the grammar? Is there going to be a comma after... Mm -hmm. Is that... Mm -hmm. Comma? And then a part of that singing is... Mm -hmm. And the sister, the other sister responding... And it's well, and it's spelled A Y U K. So this becomes uh, just approximately three to four days. Doing those three lines, and how, because in the second line it is an O O O M M A A, it's isn't O O M M A A. That becomes inconsistent. We are talking about sound. Now, this is what I'm being told. Norma, we are talking about sound. In my mind, we're talking about something that is far more spiritual. We're not talking about sound. To me, sound is a car driving by. When we're throat singing, it's a totally different level of anything. So it becomes, well, you know, where are we going to put the commas? Do you want a period after the first? Do you want a period then? Or do you want a comma? Or should we put a semicolon? And it goes on. And finally, into day two, and after emails and phone calls, I say, let's not put any grammar. Because to me, people can just go sort it out. <laughs>
2: you know, like, you can
1: it out. And I'm told, no, no, you have to get some grammar in there. And so we sit down and uh, we go through it. I sing it over and over and over. I sat in my little blue chair in my living room all three of those days, mm, mm, over and over and over and over. And um, finally, we work out the grammar. And I think, thank goodness, it's finished. Now we can actually go on with the rest of the book (laughs) yeah everything is fine and then until it goes out to the copy editor who calls me up and says i think we should go over this grammar (laughs) oh of
2: course
1: here we've been here we we sat here for you know 72 plus hours on this thing so um so when you talk about that honey when you talk about you know, grammar and, you know, like we don't speak in grammar. And when we're writing, I think, you know, um, I don't think we write in grammar either. Uh, grammar is something that I always have to go back and relearn and relearn and relearn because I really I could not tell you what is the purpose of a semicolon. I have no idea. I'd have to look it up. And I'm a PhD student. So <laughs> But it's, um, and I've written that many papers and published that many articles, and, you know, it's something that we have to relearn all the time. And and for me, we have to be very careful with it, because it can take away the integrity of a sentence. And and when we're writing, I think, uh, every sentence has to stand, and especially when we're writing poetry every sentence has to stand and if if you cannot as a writer think that way then don't write if you can't think that every word and you know every every idea every metaphor that you put together is not important enough then don't write it so it was uh, so tiny it was really there were a lot of um, struggles in terms of grammar and you know, it it was a learning process for me. And in there, I think, you know, when I go into my next round of edits for my poetry collection, I'll start edits at the end of next month. When I go into that, I go in as a very different writer, because of the experience that I had with UAP. And it doesn't mean that it was a completely bad experience. It means that, you know, I learned um, I've learned I think more how to stand my own ground you know like it, no you do not get to take that word out. you do not get to rearrange or reorganize how this story played out you know so I know I'll go in um, a much stronger defender <laughs> of my of my work Thank you so much, Nauru. What a great answer. It's just so thoughtful and meaningful, and I'm so happy. It makes me more excited to listen to the audiobook. I look forward to it. You know, I like I like when my boys were small, I always read to them. Actually, we as my sons and I read together until I think my oldest one was about 14. I think he was sick of us just coming into his room and we'd all read. <laughs> and so, you know, there comes a time they, they are. So I have bit privacy, <laughs> right? Which is, I don't know, for me it's really meaningful as person to do stuff like that. It is, it is. It was really a beautiful time, you know. I missed it when when we stopped. But they would each have a book, and I would read to them. And as they were going through elementary, I thought that they were missing out on some of the classic books that, you know, that I thought that. That I thought, of course, because I know everything as their mother, um, that I thought they, they, you know, should be hearing or influenced by. And I like we read books like The Count of Monte Cristo and, oh, there were uh, detective series books that they liked. And, and so it was always, I would read to them for most of, you know, most of their growing up years. And that was how Every Night Ended was just all of us together on somebody's bed, reading. And I think it's uh, it doesn't mean that they are readers now. They are not. They read the sports page. That's about it. <laughs> so.
3: Yep, yep, that's okay.
1: <laughs> but I think it's one of those important things to do is is to read. So I've always enjoyed reading out loud. I like it. So I, I look forward to putting the audio book together.
0: Yeah. So, do you have any advice for editors that are working with indigenous authors?
1: <laughs> I think, um, you know, above all, really take the time. You know, as indigenous people, we live a life of relationships, and that's what it all comes down to. Our whole lives are relationships, and and forming good relationships. And I think. You know, especially for publishers to, I think they really need to take the time to know that writer. And I mean to really know that writer and not not the person, I am not the person that I, I'm not the person inside of a story. And I am not Annie, you know, and to, so I think that, you know, there's an assumption if you write a certain story or within a a certain way that that is who you are but it isn't. You're the writer and you're you're removed from it. So I think that what I would like to see publishers do is really take the time to get to know that Indigenous author and don't come in making any kind of assumptions or treat us as though, you know, that we're walking into a room with efficiency or you know not having capacities as as writers, as good writers. And and I think that's what I would like more than anything, if you're going to take that manuscript on, really know who that writer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, beyond the, the motivation of the stories and to to know just who they are, spend time with them. You know, we're more than the paid. We're more than the words on a page. We are, and and I think you know, for especially Aboriginal women as writers, we have less visibility. Uh, we have you know fewer opportunities to attend readings or to present our work, and it, it's just how it, it's not fair but it's how it is within the industry right now. And I would like to see that changed. Um, when I think of Aboriginal male writers, when they're launching a book, you will rarely see them have an Aboriginal female writer open for them. And, and there's, uh, there's that kind of stuff that happens within the industry itself. So I'd like to see a lot of changes. I'd like to see the visibility of Aboriginal female writers raised. You know, and, um, and I know for me, you know, and also at the same time, it's a very, very important to promote young writers. You know, it's very, very important to to give them opportunity, and and that was part of the work I did with IHuman Human and with Boyle Street was to, to just get people writing, especially young people. It's so important. It's just so very important.
3: Do you have any advice for future writers on how to navigate this relationship with editors and publishers?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I told you that I learned a lot and I did. But um, I think, you know, go in and, and be respectful. But also protect your words. Be a protector. And, but don't be angry. Don't be you know, don't be in your face. you've got a wrong white guy. you can't be that. You know when we talk about good relationships, it's both sides. You got to have to come together and develop things into a good relationship. I would say, you know, above all, be fearless. Don't be like me and wait decades before you had the guts to stick a manuscript into a mailbox you know don't be like me get out there get after it because I think you know that there's a, a lot of really a lot of really good young writers out there and and to me that's you know as one of the things that I do as a writer is to advance other writers or else you know why would I be in this industry I wouldn't why do I want to just spend my life promoting myself? I think not. You know, I think that there's uh, many, many good young writers out there. And, you know, to go in there, you know, but uh, be polite, but be firm, and also just be fearless. Get after it. I love it.
0: <laughs> so was there anything about the publishing process that surprised you? Uh,
1: how long it took. You know, I used to, um, you know, when I'd go see, when you're a writer, you do go out to other people's readings, or if there's a, you know, a writer that's reading, you go out to it, and, you know, and, and it's a small community of artists, really, but I, I can remember listening to one Aboriginal male writer, and I'm not going to say who it was, but you know, a question came out from the audience about one of the characters in his book, and, and he was like, he paused. And it's like, you can see him trying to remember. And and I was sitting there. And I was thinking, how do you forget this character? He was one of your greatest characters in my mind. And, um, and so for me, you know, before Annie ever became got into print, that was a little over two years. And so you, by that time, by the time you've assembled a, a collection and had it accepted with a publisher, which can take up to a year, and then um, had, you know, then it actually prints, and you're put onto a little book tour, and you're out there reading, 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 and talking to all kinds of people. There were things. That I had forgotten that I'd written too, <laughs> and so when I when I'm being asked a question, I find myself thinking, "Okay, what did I do? What did I do?" Or um, or when I'm reading one of the stories at a public reading, I find myself thinking, "How long is this?" <laughs> As I'm reading it, because I even though I practice before I read publicly. Uh, I forget, you know, the number of pages. I will mark them off, and I and I'll practice for about an hour before I have to read. But uh, there's things, you know, that that process is actually very slow, and it and it does take a long time. And I've often thought back to that male Aboriginal writer and and remembered his hesitation because. I have found myself thinking, boy, I was really critical of him. But now that I know how long it takes from the time, you know, when we're finished writing that story, we're finished. And even though that, you know, Annie is a five to six year writing process of bringing all those stories together, you forget some of the things. You know, and and so that's one thing I would like people to know. Like it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it it's a very long, slow kind of process. The edits I did with Annie probably took uh, four to five months, and and that was you know having available time for the editor with my schedule and with his schedule. And, and so by the time it all comes together and you actually have that book in your hand, a couple of years has gone by. Yeah. So I'd like people to realize that it doesn't, you know, just sit overnight. So, I mean, that was, you know, and, and so for me, when people said like, oh, I just read your book or, oh, isn't this so great? I would think, yeah man, it's like. Eight years of my life over here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. From the time you finish writing and assemble a collection to the time it prints. So it, it's a slow process. <laughs>
0: So now that you're working on your Ph.D., do you have any plans to publish your Ph.D. or a chapter out of your Ph.D. when it's
1: done? Oh, definitely. I've written some stuff that I really enjoy. Um, I use indigenous research methodologies. So I use Inuit uh, Kaluma Token Geek as the, you know, how I interpret the, the data that I've assembled. And what I look at is what happens to Inuit who live in the south, and especially post-secondary Inuit students, because once we are outside of our land claim area, we are not, uh, we we cannot receive uh, full benefits based on where we're living. And it's part of how the land claim agreements were set up in the north. But a part of what I wrote in there, I wrote about blood memory. And about how do we, you know, that it lays within us. And it's up to us to activate it. It's up to us to find it and to, to work at it. And it's one of the, it was one of my favorite parts to write. was about the, how blood memory exists. and And when we are born, you know, we don't arrive into the world with an empty brain. We, you know, we do arrive into the world with memory, so it's uh, that's something I would like to publish out of that as a separate article. But I think overall, the whole thing should publish. Of course, Kayla, it should publish. Do
0: you think that there is a big difference between when you're publishing academically and when you're publishing more of like the pleasure reading, like
1: Mm -hmm. with Annie Muntag? Um, you know, for me, uh, in some ways, academic is easier in terms of the critical feedback. And so I can think, well, you know, this academic thinks I'm full of it. Well, that's okay. You know, But when I publish Annie and when I publish my poetry and I have Inuit people who come back and say this or that, which isn't always kind, that's harder. That's a much harder criticism or critique as opposed to scholarly work. You know, like I think for me with scholarly work, there's a certain amount of distance between me and the words, and, and they can stay, you know, as something distant. But when I write creatively, that's my heart. I'm giving you my heart. And now uh, now you're stepping on it. And boy, that hurts. <laughs> you know, that's a tough one to have to take back. And to, you know, and especially when you're in a, a public sphere and, you know, you have to maintain some politeness and decorum and you can't really get back at them the way you want to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just remember them. It's like, oh, I'll always remember that guy. <laughs> you know, so... So, you know, there, therein lies the difference is how close are you to that work, how how much of it is is your spirit, how much of it isn't, how much of it is trying to put ABC out into the academic world and having people try to consider, well, you know, any people do think differently and, and work differently, and therefore these post-secondary students, they do think differently and... They're going to take in the information differently. So, you know, there's a different kind of, um, there's a distance that lies in between there that some is easier to manage than others, you know. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I totally get that. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> Tony,
0: do you have a question or?
2: Maybe- uh, yeah, the- okay. Okay. Um, okay. I Okay. We typically ask you, Question: Norma, and you kind of touched on this a little bit already, mm-hmm. but we definitely want to inspire um, not just young emerging authors, but pretty much anyone to start writing down their stories or recording it in any way that they think is necessary. So, I was wondering if you had any advice for those emerging authors and what you could tell them.
1: Uh, you, you know, I I've actually written a whole poem about being an emerging writer. Like, I always, because I was told, you know, you're emerging. I was told that so many years in a row, that I would think, like, when have I arrived? Like, why am I always being introduced as an emerging writer? (laughs) What delivery date do I have? You know, like when do when do you get to be when do you qualify as an actual writer? And so for many many years in Edmonton, I would be invited to read poetry, and I would be on these stages with with people who had published collections in their hands, and I would show up with a clipboard and a piece of paper that had tea stains on it. I generally got lost trying to find the venue over and over again. So I, you know, I always had all these. So I I learned that I have to leave the house, you know, 45 minutes earlier than most people, because I'll get my problem is I enjoy being lost. No. (laughs) Otherwise. But um, so for many years, I was this uh, emerging uh, poet. And all these other authors would get up and they'd hold their books, you know, and they'd tilt their books a certain way to the audience. And it's very, very good subliminal advertising to put out there, because that audience is going to remember at least the color of your book jacket. And I would get up with a clipboard. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I And I would often think... Why do they even invite me? You know, I haven't. They could never ever call me a published author, but I would just get all these wonderful invita- invitations, and I I took every one of them, and I did my best at every one of them. And so this this terminology of emerging, you know, I don't even. I, I just wish it would would disappear because it's um, you know, it it distance it it reclassifies a writer. It's, you know, it's like saying less than, you know, you're, you're, here we have less than a writer, Norma Dunning, she's going to read for us, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, so I, I really don't like that terminology, and I read in Lethbridge last, oh, it was last October, it was really cold, it was the first time I read outside, and it was, it was brutally, brutally cold. After I'd finished, uh, this young guy came up to me, a young Native guy, and he said, Oh, I bought your book. And so I signed it for him. And he said, No, like, don't sign it. Don't use my name. He said, This is my mom's name. So he tells me, and I write to whatever his mother's name. And he said, I want her to be like you. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, I want, you know, she's a wonderful storyteller, and she writes everything down, but she never publishes, and she's around your age, and I said to him, get get after her, get after her to publish, or I said, you know, I can give you my email, and she can contact me, and I can help her put together a manuscript, so to me, like, when you make that reference to not only young writers, it's any writer's. Any Aboriginal writers, people who are, you know, like me, like I was, just tucking things away and, and, you know, finish writing a story and say to myself, "Ah, that was a good write. What a good story you just did. Pat myself on the back, go make sandwich. You know, I don't like the terminology of emerging writer. I think we should all be able to call ourselves writers, whether or not we have books in print. And at any age, don't be afraid to do it. You know, just don't be afraid to do it. I know that there have been people, Aboriginal women especially, that I've spoken with who said, you know, I tried to publish and it was just such a horrible experience. I walked away from it. Yeah. You know, that's too bad. That is just too bad. You know, I wish, uh, I wish you'd talk to me or any other Aboriginal female writer and, you know, just, turned around and walked back into that publisher. But it's so, to me, it's. I'd like us to eliminate emerging. I would like all of us to be recognized as writers and to not let your age, whether you're too young, you think you're too young, or you think you're too old, just get out there and do it. Wow, I need to scratch that off
2: my vocabulary now, too.
1: Do, Yes.
3: <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything else we haven't touched on or oh I I can't
1: think of anything um sorry <laughs> yeah perfect I, yeah, I can't I can't really think of anything but you know I like I've been I, especially I had a lot of opportunity to work with aboriginal writers in, in Edmonton and you know they were the best writers you know that that i ever ever got to work with and you know i there's a lot of people who would not go into the venues that i went into there's a lot of people who'd be terrified to go into boyle street they'd be terrified to walk into i human and i mean but we can't do that well, we say i cannot go in there and get people writing some of the, the very best writers Came out of iHuman and Boyle Street. And it was really interesting for me because when I was with iHuman, I did have some U of A students with me. And so you have this, um, who are also Aboriginal, but you have this sort of different, this difference coming into a room where, you know, you're with young people who don't know where they're going to sleep that night. They don't know what they're going to eat, and then you have other young people who are complaining because they have a pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was um, it was really interesting, but what happened in there is they came together as a very good community. You know, they really did, and so I, you know, especially don't be afraid to go into those venues. Don't don't think I can't walk in the blue. Don't think, well, I human, you know, there's a lot of weird kind of stuff that can happen when you're in there, and I learned, you know, I learned to do things like I never took a purse, I never brought a purse in, I never had my wallet on me. I didn't. I would bring like a cigarette. <laughs> but uh, it, it would, you, you, you learn how to operate in there, like you do. You learn how to operate it. And what I found really amazing, though, is I could walk along on the University of Alberta campus and not be, I think, not be recognized as an Aboriginal person. But I could walk into Boyle and I could have a Kokum walk up to me and say, hey, my girl, I went over to Winners today and bought a mirror. You want to see it? <laughs> Really wonderful people that, and so to me, it always amazed me that I could be at Boyle and be recognized as Aboriginal, but I could sit in a U of A classroom and people would think I was white. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like there was this sort of, and an acceptance and a realization that happened within, within places and spaces. That, that I think are often neglected, and and uh, that they were wonderful experiences for me. You know, I really looked forward to my... to whoever showed up. You know, there wasn't a lot of consistency, but it was whoever showed up. A lot of beauty. There was a lot, a lot of beauty that I got to experience with, with the, especially the people at iHuman. You know, last year, they... They became, I just, I fell in love with them. I just, and I would tell myself, I, as especially when I was teaching and I taught for so many years, but I would walk into a room and I would think, I'm not going to fall in love with you guys. And when I walked into iHuman, I thought, no, I'm not going to fall in love with you guys. And I fell so hard.
2: <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> they were amazing. Uh, well,
0: think, I think good note to yeah. end on falling in love with each other I know you were one of my favorite profs that I had when I was in my undergrad at the U of A in Native Studies I'm really really glad that you were able to talk to us tonight and I think you gave some great insights into publishing as an Indigenous woman and gave some great advice as well for Indigenous authors and for people who are working with Indigenous authors
3: in the publishing world yeah yeah, I learned so much. So thank you so much for sharing. True.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Norma. That was
3: really, really inspiring. I'm
2: so glad
1: that this community. Oh, <laughs> thank, thank you. Community. Yeah. Okay, yeah. guys, I'm going to go make spaghetti. <laughs> okay,
0: Perfect. recording. <laughs> Have a good night, Norma.
1: Okay, take care.
0: Bye. Bye.